This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a writer and radio producer with a PhD in English literature from Stanford University. She has had essays featured in many outlets such as the Los Angeles Review of Books, Literary Hub, and Public Domain Review. Her research focuses on artistic representations of violence from war fiction to horror film to the literary gothic and beyond. Beautiful welcomes to Dr. Chelsea Davis. Hi, Chandler. I'm so glad to be here. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Welcome. Thanks. So before we begin, I would like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. This can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves. Today's quote says that beauty is, quote, that quality or those qualities in bodies by which they cause love or some passion similar to it. They continue saying that love is, quote, that satisfaction which arises to the mind by contemplating anything beautiful of whatsoever nature it may be from desire or lust. I will reveal who said that a little bit later, but first, Chelsea, let's talk a bit about you and horror. What got you kind of interested in it, especially on the level that you engage with horror? Yeah, every horror scholar's favorite and also most dreaded question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So for me, I love the immersiveness, the emotional immersiveness of horror. I find that when I'm watching a horror film, if it's a well-crafted one, the experience of, of dread or fear Um, sometimes grief that I experience when I'm watching a horror film is much more total and sort of abiding and also more long lasting than when I'm watching other types of films. So that's sort of my emotional answer to that question, at least. And then on a structural or more like cultural analytical level, um, Mm -hmm. I do think that it, I I think we must pay attention to what our our culture fears. I think there's a lot a lot to be gained from looking at the monsters that we create, asking ourselves why we demonize certain types of people. And also on the flip side, asking perhaps how we might survive or work through those certain types of fears. So those are my two kind of my more like id focused answer to the question and my super ego (laughs) justify to fellow academics uh, explanations. I see. Yes, you got to cover those tracks, don't you? When you're Mm -hmm. going to jump on a public platform like this, I understand. Right. Uh, Very good answers. I totally feel what you were talking about with the importance of understanding what we culturally fear, because we are usually the source of our own fears on a wider level. You know, we contribute to the monsters that keep us kind of hiding away in our closets and in the shadows. So. That analysis has always driven me because I've always been a very frightened person myself. Uh, So I, (laughs) I, you know, it starts with the self to a certain degree. You try to analyze parts of yourself and then that kind of leads you on. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Were you always interested in it academically or did you get into that as you started you know, going down the path for your studies in English? It did take a little bit of time for me to sort of give myself permission to study it. Um, mm. It was always something, I think, like a lot of horror fans, I've been, you know, reading Stephen King since I was far too young and, you know, watched The Exorcist when I was in like third or fourth grade and felt this <laughs> inherent attraction to it that I couldn't yet put into words. And because it's a genre, I think less so these days, but initially, like when I was in college, it was still a genre that was sort of academically sidelined or thought of as frivolous. Mm-hmm. Um, I it, it took a little bit of time for me to say to myself, like, no, I, I do think there are fruitful, interesting questions here. And and then in, in time also to find the scholarship of people that I thought were doing really serious work with horror and that I respected. And then once those two pieces were in place, um, towards the end of college, I started uh, I started writing papers about horror. I wrote a senior paper on um, Shirley Jackson uh, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And then by the time I was applying for PhD programs, I had sort of fully leaned into the beast and given myself full permission to either, you know, destroy my career uh, by, by studying this this crazy genre or um, or perhaps achieve some kind of sustainable career path in it. Fortunately, the the gambit worked out, but yeah. So by the time I was in my English PhD program, I knew that the Gothic was what I wanted to study. And it was just a question of what angle I wanted to take um, right. for my dissertation, what I wanted to compare it to, because, you know, you can't just write about the Gothic. You have to you have to find something within that to, to talk about. Oh, well, I'm happy that you decided to go the way that you went. You know, I'd say that although things are a lot better in terms of how serious uh, the gothic and horror are being taken in academia, it's still one of those maligned kind of childish mediums or genres out there that's, you know, certain people still have that attitude of, oh, this lowbrow stuff that, you know, oh, is it just you wanting to talk about your favorite movies and act like you're being real smart about it? and. Uh, the right. more people who take it seriously and really do the the rigor and the work to unpack it and really teach people what horror has to say, the happier I am. So <laughs> I'm always happy to see another soul who took that uh, risk and it's paying off. So you're contributing to the wider umbrella that is uh, horror scholarship. So thank you for that. Yeah, sure. And I, I also want to say, I think I think it's also okay for us to admit that certain but, I mean, I, yeah, I know a key term for you in evaluating the beautiful is is goodness or what we what we deem personally to be sort of aesthetically worthy. And I do want to say, like, I think there are bad horror movies and I think there are ba- there's plenty of bad horror fiction. And it's OK for us to just tr- sort of either take pleasure in that or not. I'm not I'm not here trying to make the whole genre seem very serious and sententious or whatever. But um, I, I nonetheless think that we have to ask ourselves serious questions about why we continue to produce and then and consume these narratives with incredibly high rates. I mean, horror movies are blockbusters. You know, they're they're just like a they're a seasoned, tried and true way of getting butts in seats. If you're a film director, like that genre is a popular genre, and so you know, dismiss it as much as you want, but you also have to ask why we're attracted to it. Yeah, it's made so many careers, both behind the uh, camera and in front of it. I mean, if you have your people like McConaughey and Zellweger who try to run away from their pasts with the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, and uh, you know, I think Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer Aniston with uh, Leprechaun, and you know, people can see it as this ridiculous realm, and sometimes it totally is. But I, I like how you put it. It's 
it's not so much that we think that everything within horror has to be serious and you can't just sit down and have some catharsis and some fun brain emptying time. It's just that the work when you're writing and when you're talking on an academic level is to take everything that you are bringing to the table seriously. So if you can take Leprechaun and find something of (laughs) academic worth in there, good on you. (laughs) Take it seriously and you're looking at it as the text that it is. Uh, I mean, there's also bad literature. So (laughs) yeah. And there are terrible examples of highbrow genres too. I mean, yeah, plenty of bad quote unquote literary fiction that I would (laughs) not want to spend my time even beach reading. So it goes both ways. Exactly so. Exactly so. So are you working on anything at the moment uh, that is of a particular interest that you might want to talk about or watched anything recently? Sure. Yeah. I um, Right now I'm, I've been running or uh, writing a recurring series of essays for Tor Nightfire. So that's the horror imprint of Tor.com. Um, and I've been writing a, a column for them on the theme of color and horror uh, appropriately for our conversation today. So um, yeah, so I've written two of those essays so far. Um, and the one I'm working on next to give a sneak preview is about poison color, um, meaning color in fiction, instances in horror fiction where color signals that um, uh, a dangerous or toxic presence is afoot. So specifically, I'm looking at instances of black mold in novels like Mexican Gothic, and I'm looking at poisonous wallpaper and the, the history of arsenic being used as a dye in wallpaper in in Victorian England. And then finally, I'm also looking at poison colored plants. So in a story like Rappuccini's Daughter by Hawthorne. So just cases where this this beautiful seeming thing, uh, color, is actually telling us the opposite about about the colorful thing, that it's actually not a source of beauty, pleasure and safety, but the colorful thing is a source of danger to us. That's incredible. I I may try to I may have to like poke your shoulder about that uh, <laughs> in the coming months uh, with my own thesis right now, or I guess I don't really know what term people use all over the world. We, we say a, a master's thesis, but I've also heard some people go like, well, that's a really high uh, honor. Are you sure about a PhD? <laughs> my final paper for my master's degree uh, is focused on the beauty of cosmic horror. And mm-hmm. uh, just like with this podcast, there's a term I'd like to coin, which is unsettling beauty. So it's not quite the sublime. It's more, this feeling that we can get sometimes with beautiful objects that we are both completely compelled by them and drawn in by them, but we're disturbed by that fact, by the power that they wield over us as beautiful Mm -hmm. objects. Mm -hmm. And in cosmic horror, you know, I think that's a, a very rich gateway to go into that because the cosmos themselves tend to give us both a sublime, but also beautiful aspect that can kind of make the brain not know how to respond to it because Mm -hmm. of how vast and empty it feels. Mm -hmm. So those colors you were talking about can really come into play with some of the films that I plan on talking about in that particular uh, document. I don't know what term Mm -hmm. to use. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so interesting. Uh, I I would love to read your thesis when it comes out. Um, I think that combination of attraction and repulsion is so, so important to horror. And I, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm drawing a blank when I think of other terminology that has been introduced to discuss it. So I think you might really be onto something there with coining a new, the, the terms unsettling beauty. 
I'm hoping so. I heard of one other, and I'm sure I'll feature it as a quote someday once I can find the book and really dig in it. But uh, you have Carolyn Korsmeyer, who wrote about terrible beauties, mm. and that is indeed in line with what I'm getting at, but she's more focused on beautiful things that are also terrible. So similar to your poisonous colors, how mm. these beautiful colors often lead to something disastrous. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's the beautiful... I don't know, there are definitely monsters or just even things like a tornado can be breathtakingly beautiful, but it will destroy you. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, I haven't quite unpacked it. It's been a struggle to find this one because it's one of those uh, articles that's tucked away in a book somewhere that you cannot get anywhere (laughs) in a library. You have to buy it. So yeah, yeah, I purchased it today. Well, hopefully it'll come in soon. Nice. So she's kind of mixing the Burkean categories of the sublime and the beautiful then? In, in her, she's messing like, with yeah. it a bit. Yeah. 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 Cool. Exactly. Nice. Which, it's funny that you mentioned Burke. Okay, so before we get into the synopsis <laughs> and everything and we announce the film today, that's a good reveal for who coined the quote that I gave today. That was Edmund <laughs> Sorry Burke. About that. Who, oh, no, I love it. I, I, this is what I do. I wait for somebody to say something that I'm like, well, ah, great opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, Edmund Burke was the quote that I gave about beauty and love. And uh, that was on one of his very long tangents on his uh, development of the sublime. And he has to talk about the other aesthetic forms and emotions that we can experience that are adjacent to the sublime in order to better understand what it is not. And in that he had a very specific attitude towards beauty in our course on this. We were a little skeptical on his particular mm-hmm. formulation because he was focused on proportions and a mm-hmm. very, not even objective, but pretty much just a dogmatic approach to, well, this is beautiful. Therefore nothing else can be considered uh, otherwise. But uh, I did find it very fitting for the film that we're going to be discussing today because there's a lot of question marks that arrive when it comes to beauty and love and other aspects of this film. So, Chelsea, what film are we going to talk about today? Uh, We're talking about Anna Biller's 2016 film, The Love Witch. Love Witch, indeed. Which, this is my second time seeing this film. It's very interesting to have it with a second watch. So, for anybody Mm -hmm. who has not seen The Love Witch... I'm going to give a brief synopsis, which avoids spoilers, but our conversation will not. In order to discuss the details, we have to talk about the details, unfortunately. (laughs) But here's my synopsis. After her husband leaves her for another woman, Elaine moves to a small town to start a new life and begin a passionate pursuit for love. Upon moving into her lavish rental house, she travels through the town to make new acquaintances, explore her passion for witchcraft, and to spread her newfound views on love. Eventually, Elaine performs a love ritual and makes a potion for any man she makes a strong connection with. Unfortunately, she is unprepared for the potency of her potions and spellcraft, and the men she gives the potion to end up going mad with an emotional obsession with her. Elaine begins to wonder if she is doomed to only be an object of desire for men rather than a woman who is worthy of true, mature love. When she meets the local sheriff, Griff Meadows, Elaine is certain she has finally found a man who won't leave her, abuse her, or use her. While she explores her new love, her past transgressions and Griff's own perspectives on love collide, putting Elaine in a position she has tried so hard to avoid her entire adult life. Mixing true accounts of witchcraft, feminist discourse, and a tragic tale of love and obsession, the love witch is your ultimate fantasy. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. (laughs) 
the, the briefest of gists there. But so when I approached you and asked you to jump on this podcast and I mentioned beauty, what was it that made you go the love witch? This was the one we had to discuss. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, uh, the love witch has a color story and attention to lavishness of sets and costume and prop that I think is super rare in horror films uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And we can get into the, the reasons for which Anna Biller chooses to do all that. But I just think uh, Biller has such a unique vision in that, in that regard. There's uh, this is a technicolor movie, essentially. She's bringing us yes. back to the era of the forties through the sixties, the sort of golden age of, of technicolor. Like I mentioned, it's, it's shot on, uh, on film, not digitally, which also gives it that sort of very rich coloration. It uses hard key lighting. Uh, her DP, um, M. David Mullen, is, uh, you know, completely recreates the dreamy, but also very high contrast look of movies from the 50s and 60s. So those are all the technical things I, I like about it. But then I was also interested in talking about it for this podcast, because I think the movie also thematizes questions of beauty, specifically female beauty, their connection or lack thereof to love. And sort of, I would say this is not so so much a movie that's about like a cautionary tale about beauty. It's not that, it's not really the poisonous beauty per se. It's not really just a straight up black widow tale and that, um, you know, Elaine ends up murdering the men that she, that she gives love spells to. It's more like, for me, the movie is more about the insufficiency of beauty actually, because so much of what, Elaine tries to achieve fails, including her sort of attempt to make herself into this, one character calls her like a Stepford wife, you know, so she's this completely male gazy fantasy by design. She's, she's made herself into what she thinks men want. And yet she continually fails to sort of find love that satisfies her. Um, We can get into the reasons for that. But anyway, so I think that the technical, the technically gorgeous aspects of the film draw me to it, but also the things that it's actually saying in the narrative of the film about beauty. I could totally see that. I was enamored with this film the first time that I saw it. I actually, around that time, I started watching some films by Paul Nashi mm-hmm. that are just, you're familiar with his work? No, I'm Have not. Seen- Okay, so he made, uh, it was in Spain around the 1960s, 70s, and he essentially made like the Spanish equivalent of the Universal Movie Monsters kind of stuff. Mm, So he made werewolf movies where he just looked like the 1940s Wolfman (laughs) in Technicolor. And it was the most Technicolor, bright, vibrant stuff, but it was also low budget. So, Mm. you know, they just reused the same prosthetics over and over and over again. And he's a big (laughs) ladies' man who's got his dark secret and all the women. And have the same types of makeup so it was really interesting for me that i saw the love witch and then i saw his movies mm-hmm. kind of bookending around that so to see the artifice together with the true kind of source of those films in their own time mm-hmm. it just struck me how much that uh anna biller managed to create something from the past in the modern day and I, I loved how she said in interviews, too, like it's very clear if you look closely in the film, this movie takes place in the modern day. Right. It's just got the style of it. And people keep getting confused. Like, is this supposed to be in the 60s or something? And not <laughs> at all. It's just to say it has a message to say that I feel that she chose the right aesthetic qualities to really do something unique with this particular type of 
storytelling and these mm-hmm. these particular themes. So right. what you're getting right. at the second time I viewed it today, it really jumped out at me that interplay mm-hmm. between the two. Totally. And I think I don't know if this is part of what you're getting at, but what what you're making me think of is also that I think the movie really thematizes nostalgia. It thematizes mm-hmm. the ways that we kind of live in the past, aesthetically in the case of the way the movie is made, but also like a lot of the characters have these everyone's sort of living in their fantasy world. It's actually not just Elaine, the, the, the love witch, who has this fantasy of true love. It's also, I think, at one point, her, her kind of feminist friend Trish says, like, oh, I just love Victoriana. There's another character um, who talks about Rick, I think. The, the married man that Elaine ends up seducing says something like, I just love those old gangster films and those old westerns. Yeah. Um, right? So he has this kind of male-driven fantasy that he wants to escape to. Um, and then there's obviously the Renaissance Fair that uh, Elaine and Griff attend at one point that kind of represents this like ideal of courtly love that was never really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, I think the, the ways that the aesthetics of the movie, the technical aspects of it mix this kind of older technicolor vision in the contemporary world are really fitting, as you're saying, because it's about the ways that we always, always try to escape into the into the past, especially with regard to love in, in some cases. Oh, and the other example that I wanted to talk about was that um, Wayne, the first man she seduces, yeah. who is a, uh, a professor or a, I forget if they, yeah, he's a college professor. Mm-hmm. Um, he teaches romantic literature and the student that we see him talking to is sort of like clutching a copy of a a Byron poetry collection right and he he is always talking about how he wants wants to escape into the nature right implicitly like the capital R romantics and so everyone here is kind of living in a different time it's maybe most obvious with Elaine but um no one no one is really able to get what they want in this movie because they're all living elsewhere you know mentally exactly yeah, you're right. The, the fact that they're not living in the now and they're they're all stuck in this sort of time capsule. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a great job with the costume design in this too to make sure that anybody that mm-hmm. they just kind of caught candidly in the streets were very modern. But mm-hmm. All of their characters had, you know, they had like the really high collared, fl- like flared kind of collars for the men. The women had the very uh, kind of, I I can't even describe the dresses that they were wearing. They were all Mm -hmm. very almost Victorian in some instances Mm -hmm. uh, with the types of frill and stuff that they put on them. And I mean, Elaine's wardrobe is straight out of the sixties for the most part. Uh, And the wig, I love the fact the wig that they have no (laughs) qualms even talking about how, of course women used to always wear wigs because we had to make sure that we met the visual standards of the men that were around us. So we made sure that the the bouffant and make sure that the hair was as high as it could possibly be without being ridiculous. Right. And all of that goes into this nostalgia that you're pointing out. Actually, I liked the fact too, that they talk about it in like face to face. If you look at Wayne, one thing that really struck me was when they were having the conversation at his cabin about the fact that he taught romantic literature from the uh, from England and from France, mm-hmm. she asked, "Are you a libertine?" Mm-hmm. And although he's flirting with her, he does kind of say, "You know, they wrote a lot of things in the 1800s." So I like that he's <laughs> kind of showing, like, I know a little bit more than just the romantic stuff. But <laughs> if you want me to be romantic, I can. It's kind of what he's putting on there. It didn't turn right. out too well for him, unfortunately. No, poor Wayne. Poor Wayne. Poor Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I'm glad you brought up the costumes because, um, you know, as uh, 
part of what makes this movie so compelling to me aesthetically is that Anna Biller did, she created so much of it. I mean, this, she is like a total filmmaker in part out of necessity. I mean, she said, maybe you came across this in interviews, but she just didn't have the budget to like hire seamstresses, people to create her sets, to buy props. So she like created, physically designed and created the costumes herself, created the sets herself, you know, that pentagram rug that you see maybe for 10 seconds total of actuality. She hooked that rug herself. It took her like six months. Um, Yeah. So the movie in total took her um, over seven years to create because she's doing the costume. She's creating the set. She's painting the props. She scored the movie Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, also wrote and directed it and and edited it actually. So, um, you know, part part of what's so what I think works so well is that it truly is the brainchild of one person. There's this kind of consistency. So yeah, the costumes, there's a reason the costumes feel like they are so much of a piece with the script and and with the makeup and everything like that is because there was one human who was doing pretty much all of those things. And it blows my mind every time I think of it. Um, So for listeners who aren't aware, here's a little peek behind the scenes. I make a kind of one sheet for my guests just to put the pertinent information that we might need. Uh, just quick thing for names so we don't have to have a bunch of tabs up. And it was normally I have to put a bunch of different names for the crew. <laughs> and I think there's only one name because of the cinematography that was different, but the rest is mm-hmm. Annabella, Annabella, Annabella. I was like, oh, wow, I'm just going to copy paste her name now because <laughs> she just did everything for this movie. <laughs> and you can feel that passion in this film, though, down to every little nuance in the performances as well. I love that she learned an entire filmmaking style Mm -hmm. in and out to Mm -hmm. recreate it, to make sure that this metaphor was done as explicitly as it was in her imagination. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really paid off. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to quickly go back to what you were talking about, the inefficiency of beauty in regards to love. Mm -hmm. So what, parts of this film really spoke to you in that regard? Uh, I guess first and foremost, the fact that uh, Elaine, who is played by, is played by Samantha Robinson, who I think is like one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen and has that kind of like studio era Hollywood beauty of like a Sophia Loren or an Elizabeth Taylor is like this very sort of sensual, soft beauty of the face. And yet, even though this woman is gorgeous and is like, literally turning heads when she goes down the street. Um, she feels the need to sort of, to add more force and power to that. Like it's still, mm. she says at one point, magic, magic is just a way of using your will to get what you want. And you have this sense that beauty hasn't been enough for her to get what, what she wants. She still has this sort of history of having been um, abused and then left by her past husband. Kind of, although she does successfully use love magic to make two more men fall in love with her, she actually can't make the third man, Griff, fall in love with her. Like she, she, he, she keeps trying. He says, I'm not in love with you, Elaine. I'm going to arrest you for these murders that I have found you to be guilty of. Anyway, and so, so there's this way in which like both witchcraft and her insane beauty actually are, are, they don't succeed in winning her what she wants, which is this sort of very, very totalizing vision of a man's affection kind of divorced from sex and we can probably get into the gender essentialism of the movie at some point too but it's like implied that women just want love men just want sex uh a little problematic but for with you know within the story of of this movie i think 
although we're seduced into enjoying it as a and as an aesthetic experience of a movie and enjoying seeing Samantha Robinson on a screen, there's this there's this hollowness hollowness because it doesn't it doesn't pay off in terms of achieving her goals. That is perfect hollowness. I wholeheartedly agree with that because normally these movies, as I was mentioning with the Paul Nashi films, they were still kind of fun erotic thrillers. You know, they still had those moments of the "Please make love to me, man," and he's like, <laughs> "Yes, of course, I finally saved the day." And then they have the romantic music and you get the kind of '60s music video style editing and everything. But this movie uses all of those aesthetic choices, and yet it's such a quietly almost asexual film in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. although there's a lot of freedom of sexual expression involved and eroticism for empowerment, it never feels as if it is meant to be sexy or erotic in nature. Mm-hmm. It's um, because of, I think that pursuit of love at the heart of it and the tragedy of that love, not really manifesting throughout the whole thing that even mm-hmm. when you have your erotic moments, you can feel from the characters how hollow they are mm-hmm. and how torturous it is for Elaine to go through this entire process. That's right. Yeah, totally. And, and part of that is really doubled up by the kind of, I mean, some people call it like a wooden acting style in, in the mm-hmm. film. Um, I think Anna Biller, conversely she calls it sort of a classical acting style so basically what you would see on screen in the 40s and 60s it it, the the actors are acting in such a way where it doesn't sound conversational or casual it sounds like they're delivering lines and i love you griff and that kind of thing um yeah and that really adds to that feeling for a modern viewer i mean anna billard loves that style of movie so this is no shade against her but uh you know, for a contemporary audience to see that, it feels like there's something performative about it, you know, and there's this this blank look that comes into Elaine's eyes as she's sort of, um, the day after she gives her first target, Wayne, a psychedelic drug, and he they have this, you know, incredibly intense sexual experience, but then the next day he's sort of like reduced by the power of his love for her to this quivering mass, and she's sort of comforting him. She's saying, poor poor baby in this way that's just like so unfeeling and hollow <laughs> you can you can tell she's just completely checked out at that point and that later she says like oh men are pathetic like what a pussy men are pathetic <laughs> um and so yeah i think i think the acting style really drives home that that feeling that there's something missing beneath the surface of of this beautiful world that's been crafted before our eyes yeah Precisely. I, I was watching some of the bonus features on my Blu-ray today and they had an interview with Anna and she talked about how in only one screening before they actually released the film to festivals, did anybody respond the way she had hoped that it was <laughs> tragedy and they're all sad and morose. And she said, everybody else was laughing the whole way through thinking this is the best parody I've ever seen because she nailed that sort of classic Hollywood style of acting that we have really moved away from over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. And for, I think for not just modern audiences, but also younger modern audiences that didn't grow up on their classics, they just see something archaic. There's no nostalgia involved anymore. It's just something mm-hmm. that's dead. And mm-hmm. so it seems like you are parodying something that we are ashamed of when, you know, Anna Biller is saying, I'm not ashamed of it. This is, this is the best most pure cinema I could give you. Right. And you're laughing at it. I, I will say she right. was a very good sport about it. She could laugh at it because she said she could see 
why people wouldn't necessarily click the way she felt, but she doesn't blame anybody for it. <laughs> I'm happy that she's got the right sense of humor about it. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, at a certain point, like the filmmakers take on a movie is, is just another opinion, right? Yeah. The, the finished film, we, we can all have very different opinions about it and we don't have to agree with filler at all. Um, so yeah. And I think to me that, I mean, it, you got to admit there are certain moments that seem intentionally funny. Like there are all these cutaways from, um, like there's a scene where, hmm, I think it's where Rick, the married man that Elaine has an affair with, he's mm-hmm. uh, killed himself by slashing his wrists. And there's this sort of, again, technicolor blood all over the bath, really gross. And then it cuts directly away from a shot of his blood to a shot of um, this sort of, of a cake. And there's some like red gel being poured on the cake. It's yeah. kind of a garnish, very sort of American psycho opening credits analogy going on there and um and so like a moment like that is just straight up funny and i i hope that filler wouldn't wouldn't deny that and little jokes too like i don't know the fact that she puts something called flying which is flying lotion all over her legs and then the next day rick is talking about like you know what i really like flying i just really wish i could fly mm-hmm. and so there are these little in jokes that i feel like are undeniably meant to get a sort of morbid chuckle out of you Oh, yeah. There's a lot of strong allegory in the film and coincidence and metaphor that, you know, that's also going back to that classic Hollywood style. There's a lot of just ex machina that just takes place. You're like, hey, I was just talking about that five minutes ago. And then you continue on with your story because somebody (laughs) had the information you needed. Well, like Mm -hmm. the way the cops find out about Wayne in the first place. There's this random, you know, probably a student of his, of, of Wayne's, that he's mm-hmm. talking to when Elaine talking to, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's chatting up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he just walks. Also, if this was not meant to be funny, I mean, the way he just turns and walks away from her, doesn't even say bye, <laughs> just turns and goes to Elaine. That's right. Uh, she remembers that. She remembers Elaine. She remembers that he had a cabin that he would take girls to. She has every bit of information that he tells Elaine in the cabin right that I'm like have you been to the cabin before (laughs) relationship do you have with this guy and then suddenly the cops are there and they're looking for everything and I I -hmm. I chuckled but not to make fun of the film at all though I think you know the I will say yes uh to her point there is a tragic story in there that Mm -hmm. can be lost if you get too swept up in this sort of dreamlike world that she's created and if you do get caught in your nostalgia you're going to be smiling the whole way through mm-hmm. and although there's a firm tongue in a cheek somewhere in this film <laughs> there's also the fact that we're dealing with a woman who has dealt with abuse microaggressions mm-hmm. and just the same problems that most women especially in america go through every day mm-hmm. and she's trying her way of processing this and reconciling this and she's failing right in front of us. Right. So that tragic story, I will say, hit me more in the second viewing just because I was so caught up in the nostalgia the first mm-hmm. time that this time I could really feel Elaine's just exacerbation about the whole thing. She's, or exasperation. That's the word I'm looking for. Just this, She's right. just so run down right. by trying to be on all the time at the highest caliber that she can be. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's inefficient. It, mm-hmm. It's not working. Mm-hmm. I will also say in regards to beauty, one thing I think that creates this tragedy is the fact that we are presented with an, a pretty horrible truth, which is that love isn't necessarily a beautiful emotion. 
There's beauty within it. You see her kind of puppy love for Griff when they first uh, start going out, and especially during the mock wedding. She's like, oh, he's the best ever. But look mm-hmm. at Wayne. He has this love potion, and it destroys him because mm-hmm. he's so in love with her that he doesn't even know how to keep his heart beating anymore because all he's thinking about is Elaine. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see the ugliness that comes with love. If it's not mm-hmm. reciprocated, it's the most devastating emotion you could possibly have. And I don't think Elaine right. has a good grasp on that because she's shying away from the pain that she felt when her husband left her. That's right. Yeah, totally. And it's almost like, I don't know that we get any visions of, um, it, it feels impossible for almost for there to be any kind of reciprocal love in the movie. Right. I mean, the, all that we see are examples of imbalance and way and one way or the other, I mean, it's a very hetero universe. So just taking that yeah. as it is, right? Like that that's the universe of the film. <laughs> I realize that queer love exists in the world. But that being said, like all we ever see are examples of a woman loving the man more in this movie or or vice versa, right? There's this sense in which even, even though ironically, like Elaine's aesthetics and decision-making are sort of guided by the, the tarot deck, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I think the character Barbara, who's a fellow witch says at one point, like, the tarot deck or um, and, and witchcraft are all about polarity, about the balance between the male and the female. But we never we never see that balance. Maybe the closest we come actually is within the coven itself. The um, the lead warlock uh, seems to be romantically involved with Barb at some point. But but that the manifestation of that in, in the coven is very creepy because it's I think it's explicitly shown to be a sort of a kind of sexual bondage that the female witches enter into under the male warlocks in order to in order to gain access to these powers right like when we see elaine's initiation ritual i think it's implied that she's basically raped by the the lead warlock in order to gain access to the powers that she later has so even you know even in this space of magic and and fantasy that is witchcraft it feels like there's there's some inability to find any kind of balance or any kind of love free of violence or force. That is a strong point of the film. I felt as well that, that, that sort of violent nature between that polarity that they create, at least the, the violence that you have in within love, um, because that's the choice that Elaine also makes is, uh, uh, to use modern speak, I suppose people would say she chose violence. You know, she chose <laughs> to go out and weaponize everything that was used against her mm. and to own it, which is very empowering. But she does it to such an obsessive degree that are you, you know, her claims of I give men everything they want so that they will be you know, basically under my control. You have to ask, has that ever been true? Mm. Or have they gotten what they want and you are still unfulfilled because you've never fought for what you need, which is more important than what people want. Of course, you know, Elaine needs true love, but she doesn't understand what true love is because it's a much more subtle experience. If you take that classical Hollywood set of emotions, we're used to true love being a a, a shut up and kiss me. And then you, (laughs) you know, people who, kick down doors because they want to express their love. They'll miss their flight. They'll stop their job for the CIA and all that stuff, <laughs> put their, their lives in danger. And love isn't always a very big expression. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. look at her love with Griff. It's very quiet for the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Could have worked if she wasn't, you know, 
wanted for murder, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although he says um, he's he's sort of got his hackles up against love because he's afraid it'll yeah. make him a worse cop to fall in love. It's like oh, yeah. sort of masculinity is uh, hyper masculinity is incompatible with it in, in his mind. But but yeah, you're right. And I think I, I think also this move. Like there's a long history of um, at least so I don't know a ton about the occult outside of what I've seen in narrative. I should I should say, but um, that being said, I will say there's this strong history in films about witches of not conflating, but basically witches using sorcery to gain love for themselves. And so there's this, and, and Elaine Elaine totally embodies this. But I'm also thinking of like. The, the film Bell, Book, and Candle, I think 1958, um, Season of the Witch by George Romero, mm-hmm. um, The Craft. Uh, there There is a love spell or two in The Craft. Yep. Faruza Balk's character, and Nancy, I think, is... Um, oh, actually, is she looking for revenge? I forget. She's um, getting revenge. Yeah. She's getting revenge. She's getting revenge, but it's revenge on a man who spurned her, right? Um, exactly, yeah. So, yeah. No, I was gonna say, but yeah, she just straight up seduces him while he's in the thralls of a love spell. That's with, right. What was her name again? Sarah or something. Sarah, the I boring think so, yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> the, bo- the, the flat, boring one. <laughs> the flat protagonist. The I new girl. I'm Team Nancy all the time. All the way. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> um, That's a tragedy. Anyway, yeah, it is a tragedy. I hate that. I hate that Sarah is like the lead of the coven by the end. She's so boring. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what Elaine, what Annabelle is tapping into with Elaine is that there's this sort of transactional nature of a love spell, right? There's the sense of like, if I do X, Y, and Z spells and say these words and gather these potions and create this voodoo doll, or not voodoo, but this doll, then I will I will gain love. I will gain some kind of control over the, the other person. And so it is a way in, in the witchcraft vision of love, at least as it's presented in the film tradition, like there is something very forceful about it. And it's about yes. exerting your will over the other person instead of, instead of, as you're saying, Chandler, like a kind of quiet uh, and more equanimous, uh, egalitarian love. That's like just about two people sort of freely giving their love. There's no, there's no freedom for the men in the, the vision of love that Elaine has. So I think there's something really tragic about that. Yeah. Also, the people that she chooses and the way that she does it as well. She has no patience with getting to know people. She just right. says, "I like that man. He's going to be mine." And then right. she makes a spell. You know, she's like a Venus flytrap and just latches on. But right. you see the compatibility issues that arise. Because right. of I mean, you got Wayne, who already uh, just—he clearly was still young in his head and had never dealt with. And emotion probably much more than his maybe insecurities as a teacher. But beyond that, I'm sure that he was still learning how to, you know, be open with his emotions. But you also pointed out it's her will that she's imposing on people. So Mm -hmm. what makes it even more violent is that she makes them feel how she feels. Mm -hmm. So we actually see just how monstrous of an obsession she has Mm -hmm. with wanting this love and the pain and anguish that she still holds and harbors for her ex. Mm -hmm. And wow. When you, when I looked at it that way, those scenes are so much darker for me Mm. in just how devastated these characters are. And I love how she's basically treating them. The, she even says it in one point in one of her thoughts, you know, nobody's 
listen to him. He's just crying and screaming and nobody ever cared when I cried. I could cry for days and nobody comforted me. So why should I care about him? That's right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And you sort of understand where she's coming from on the one hand, but on the other, it makes it even creepier to watch how composed, I mean, to to know that these are the kind of violent emotions uh, and intensity of of love feelings that reside within Elaine, because she's so composed and and again, wooden, as you see her move around the the world and around the sets, even when she's alone, or even when she's in an all-female space like the Victorian Tea Room, she is just constantly performing for some kind of gaze. It's the way she holds herself. It's the way that she is always dressed to the nines. Even again, if she's like home alone in her apartment mm-hmm. wearing a psychedelic, beautiful two-piece jumpsuit that I would love to steal, frankly. But like, <laughs> like she, she always looks as though she's on a stage acting. And then to know that she's somehow repressing that violent strength of emotion underneath that tranquil surface it's a very it's a very monstrous vision in a way i mean it makes her into this kind of very scarily imbalanced creature i think yes we are definitely met from the very beginning with a character who is a product of trauma but it has turned into a a force that is detached from the kind of emotional scale of the people around her Mm-hmm. So she's a very singularly focused person and it can be unnerving at times. It's very interesting. You point out how performative she is even when she's alone. Cause I was thinking of the giant vanity mirror and how perfectly it's set up with her wig and she can look at herself on her bed and all that. Mm-hmm. The only time she doesn't seem to do that is when she's doing witchcraft and like, I mean, mm. old witchcraft, like when she makes the witch's bottle, then mm. she strips down and does it mm. the, the very naturalistic way she Mm. even gets a few cuts and scrapes here and there and she doesn't mind she's doing her duty and digging Mm. in the dirt uh but (laughs) at the same time you hear her thought saying i don't really mind dead bodies we're all just going to be reincarnated i've buried quite a few people and you have to wonder Mm -hmm. uh literally like (laughs) this is not your first foray what's happening (laughs) maybe her first husband i guess we don't we don't know what happened to the body there like if she uh true she's wanting to but yeah, that's a really good point that a little bit of the grittiness comes in when she makes the witch bottle and she puts her tampon into it and pees into it. That's like one of the more squeamish scenes, I think, for for someone who isn't, you know, maybe used to seeing like women's bodies. Um, and, and also the way that she then <laughs> like lets that house, lets the cabin in the woods kind of go to seed. Like the, when the detectives walk in later to try to find Wayne's body, they they like gag immediately because oh, there's all this old food that's been left out and everything. She's she yeah she is sort of like a natural predator or something who's very composed in the moment, but then leaves behind her this like trash trail basically that she doesn't care about anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. It shows how much of the crime is of passion as well. That 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 mm. singular focus that we were speaking of that is made evident in those moments because she even has a moment where she's brushing her hair in the vanity mirror and she's going through all of the abusive things that men in her past have yelled at her. Mm. And her husband used to have that sweet voice, but then say things like, I don't know, you really don't brush your hair very often. I mean, we do have guests from time to time. You should be more presentable. Mm -hmm. Look at this place. It's a bit of a pigsty. I mean, I found a hot dog under the couch. (laughs) All of these little details that, I mean... 
we don't know what their lives were like. We don't know what sort of arrangements they made for each other, but one can just assume that it was the classic, okay, now that we're together, you handle the household and I live a life kind of situation. And I think Annabella did a great job with the irony of this, showing that as a murderous figure, she is sloppy and she does leave a mess lying around. (laughs) She didn't clean up after herself. And all of those little things end up being her undoing by the end of the film because she's not focused on any of that. She's focused on her own feelings and emotions, which is what her drive is. Right. Right. So one of the first things that you brought up was the aesthetics of the film. So let's talk a bit about the color palette that they Mm -hmm. used throughout this movie, because the contrast and the saturation are up on this film. The (laughs) color is live. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, especially since I did uh, catch your symposium on color in horror, which I found absolutely fascinating. I do recall you mentioning the love witch briefly in that, but for the people listening here, uh, what sort of reading, uh, at least briefly, do you have on the way color was used in this film? Yeah, I think, well, thank, thanks. Thanks for attending my talk and for your kind remarks. And I'm really glad it led, it led to us getting to have, you know, this, this conversation together. Um, what I said in that talk about the love witch was I, I've sort of been kicking around this idea um, that I'm calling polychromatic perversity. Um, so the idea that although color is beautiful, theoretically, some films use it to signify that there's actually been sort of a moral corruption that's led to that kind of beauty. It's, it's like a kind of decadence. And, and the other examples that I looked at in that talk where um, Roger Corman's adaptation of the Re- Mask of the Red Death, mm-hmm. the Ed Growl and Poe short story, which also uses all kinds of beautiful technicolor palettes to depict like basically uh, an aristocrat who's completely decadent and holds a ball um, even as a, a pestilence rages outside the castle. And then the other example was, I think it was in the 1940s, there was a version of the picture of Dorian Gray that was released that's mostly shot in black and white, but then the moments where you see Dorian Gray's decaying portrait are colorized. Um, oh. So the, it's really neat. Yeah, and I, I really recommend looking up a, an image or I can send you one. But basically there's this sense in which like things shouldn't be too beautiful because there's a kind of, you know, a sensuality to to the beauty of color that is also very dangerous. And so that I was thinking about that with the love witch, the kind of strip tease that she does for Wayne early in the film where she says, I give you the rainbow and he's tripping balls. So he's seeing like everything with these kaleidoscopic lenses and everything. Um, so yeah, I think in this, in this movie, it's, it's flirting with that idea that like too much, too much beauty can be kind of corruptive to the soul, but it doesn't fully commit to that because I think it also wants us to enjoy, just straight up enjoy the colors of of the film. And there's just, there is just simply like also an appreciation for visual pleasure. Um, I think Anna Biller said in an interview that I read that um, she wanted to answer the, the film critic, Laura Mulvey uh, developed, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but for listeners who don't, the idea of the male gaze in cinema and, I guess Mulvey also said at some point that she challenges filmmakers to attempt to think through what a female gaze in cinema might look like. And Anna Biller has said that her use of color is in part an attempt to answer that question to say, I want, I want people to continue to look at my, to look at my movies and to have pleasure in a sort of quote unquote feminized way. And color is part and parcel of that to 
to Biller. Another thing that I think is really cool to track throughout the movie specifically is that apparently Elaine's apartment is colored in the style of the Thoth tarot deck. So those sort of yellows and blues. And I think throughout the most important colors to the movie are, are red and yellow and blue. Yeah. Which also show up a lot in Suspiria, which I think like, you know, raises the question of the influence that Giallo filmmaking probably had on this film as well. Maybe worth talking about separately, but those are a couple things. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, on that note from the female gaze. Yeah. She also mentions this. So if anybody who can find the Blu-ray of this film, if you're interested in that, they have a wonderful interview with Anna Biller and they're showing a lot of behind the scenes footage over the interview. So you don't see her, you just hear her in a very short interview. And she does mention indeed how, you know, a lot of the sorts of bright technicolor imagery and especially colors like pink and red and bright yellows have been considered very effeminate in cinema. And nowadays everything's murky and they try to get away from all of that. And she's like, no, why why can't we have effeminate looking colors and things that are beautiful or that a a quote unquote girly eye may appreciate in, in a different way. So she harnessed it and tried to tell a feminist story within something that would normally be or at least in a style that would normally present a male gaze purely as i mentioned before these films tended to be more about the man gets the woman and then we have our erotic music video so mm-hmm. uh with her shying away from all of that uh you can see her clear ad- objective kind of coming to the fore throughout the film mm-hmm. and i i want to come back to the thing with wayne i my what I love that you brought up was the fact that too much beauty can be dangerous or a sign of something dangerous. And that's something that I've come across in my research as well. Now I'm not the kind of person that is easy with like dropping names and stuff if I don't have documents in front of me. So (laughs) bear with me on that. But I will say what I have come across time and time again uh, in philosophy, uh, either people in film philosophy or film theory would push against discussing beauty because they found it to be destructive to analytics mm. or to appreciation of technical aspects of film. So like, oh, we can't get much out of the themes and the plot because we're too enamored with how beautiful it is. But we're looking at a bad movie that just happens to be pretty to look at is kind of how mm-hmm. they were behaving. But there are other philosophical points that just brought up the fact that too much beauty is just a painful thing to deal with. And mm. beauty, like love, um, especially if, uh, this harkens back to Plato, that beauty is a very loud and expressive emotion internally, that it's something that we feel quite profoundly. We just may not express it to the outside world as profoundly as we're feeling it. Mm-hmm. So I love that moment in that striptease when she opens up her coat, mm-hmm. which was black, and it's this rainbow. And he's like, why are you so bright? <laughs> and it was such a perfect encapsulation of that feeling that the beautiful colors that were on display were causing him physical harm because his Mm. emotions couldn't deal with how much he was enjoying it. It's Mm -hmm. pleasure to the point of torture basically. Mm -hmm. And that I found to be that kind of like red line throughout this film of how much beauty indeed is a sign of something more treacherous uh, that's lurking beneath the surface. That's such a good point. Yeah, it's almost it's almost a Cenobite moment when she does that. It's like the <laughs> oh, the line between pleasure and pain. Um, but yeah, that's that's totally true. Um, it's sort of unfettered access to the object of desire is not actually what we want at the end of the day because you know 
And in part, that's because fantasy and desire are much more fun than actually getting the things that we fantasize and desire about, right? Like it's in the waiting and the delay that, that, you know, manageable pleasure arises, not in the actual encounter. But I also wanted to go to, to follow up on color and to um, yoke it together with what you were just saying about beauty being dismissed in some discussions of, of film. That's also specifically been a kind of criticism levied against color in the history mm-hmm. of aesthetics. So uh, David, the scholar David Batchelor wrote a whole book about chromophob- called Chromophobia about the phenomenon by which critics in art history as well as in film have talked about how color is actually, you know, not an important part of the, the image. So this is the happening since the 18th century. The things that we should pay attention to are form and composition. And color is the kind of icing on the cake, but it's not actually that advanced or that mature to think about color, you know? And then right. as you get into the early history of film, it gets even more <laughs> aggressive than that. And people... Um, people were worried about the moral effect that color would have on viewers, and they were worried about the physical effect it would have on viewers. So at some point, um, there was so much fear that color, for instance, would cause eye strain in viewers in the 1920s and 30s that I think it was Technicolor itself commissioned a study of eye, uh, eye strain and color film, and they were relieved to find that no, in fact, watching color movies isn't going to cause headaches and, you know, myopia and all kinds of problems with vision. Nonetheless, this idea that color is like sort of unsophisticated, it's for women and the lower classes and for children has kind of doggedly persisted over time, exactly as you're saying, such that it still might be seen as more mature to create a kind of like grayscale movie, be it in horror, sci-fi. This is so common. These, I mean, the new Dune movie is like a great example of this, how you just see this bullet gray everywhere because it's thought of as sort of more capital S serious instead of the frivolity of color. And just, I love that this movie just gives that all a big middle finger, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's bold. And it's one of the few films of the last 10 years to really do that. Um, you know, you have what they call the A24 filter, which is essentially A24 just saying, if you gray it out a little bit, it looks more <laughs> profound. Right. And th- right. they're not wrong. Th- those movies do somehow get a strange prestige because they put a filter on it to make it look like it's 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you take Ari Aster, who looked around and said, <laughs> oh, but I, li- I like to make movies. I don't really care about making your kind of movie. So he made Midsummer, and is like, here's the brightest horror movie right. I could give you. Right. And I... So happy to see more filmmakers doing that. But I, I think we could say that The Love Witch was one of those kind of sleeper hits that kind of sparked that inspiration to shrug it off. You know, mm-hmm. this whole movie is about breaking down systems and getting away from other people's ways and perspectives on life mm-hmm. and building one for yourself. And the whole way she made the movie to begin with is just her saying, I, I know how movies are made, but I made mine. Right, right. You know? Totally. I mean, there are a lot of analogies between Anna Biller herself and Elaine, the character in that sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. with no offense to Anna, she's not a sociopathic murderer. Um, <laughs> she, she has her problems and stuff, but she's, you know, she's not Elaine. But in the, on the other hand, Elaine is also this sort of crafts person. She's an artist. She creates candles and other objects of witchcraft that she sells to a local store. And she is a painter. We see her painting these uh, tableaus that she puts up across all across the room. And that kind of detail-oriented craftsmanship is exactly what Anna Biller put, puts towards her own films, as we were saying earlier with 
controlling nearly every aspect of them out of out of like financial necessity sometimes but that that connection of like female craftsmanship that is sometimes very slow and takes a long time and and is often dismissed because of not being serious i think is this real through line between the character and the director mhm yeah and knowing how many hats she wore with making this movie it's understandable and kind of expected i would say that the protagonist of the film ends up being kind of the allegory for <laughs> the director's and writer's own stance on mm-hmm. a particular situation uh especially just knowing where the motivations came from to make the movie to begin with uh, elaine has a lot of similarities there mm-hmm. um and it's also the whole use of witchcraft as well if you think about color and meaning like that's a very wise choice on her part because color has specific meanings within witchcraft mm. um I know a bit about the occult, but not witchcraft specifically. But so mm-hmm. I don't know what each color means, but I do know that with particular rituals, you would use a different colored candle, or mm-hmm. you would use. Uh, they have two different blades that they tend to use for things. One you tend to dig in the earth with. One you tend to cut things with, like your ropes and stuff. So, mm-hmm. and one is uh, like made out of onyx. So you know, black mm-hmm. has a tendency to mean very specific types of rituals. Mm-hmm. There's also white magic, black magic, things like that. So, uh, times of day are very important as well. And that usually comes down to the hue of the sun that Mm. whatever color light is being implemented within your manifestation can have an impact on your emotions. Therefore it has an impact on the universe, star alignment, all that. Uh, So that craftsmanship that she's used, it goes just the more you look, the deeper it gets, you know, it it doesn't, when you told me that it took her seven years to make this, I'm surprised it was so quick. (laughs) <laughs> research she's put into this unless right. she's a practicing witch herself and most you know it could be that those things are second nature to her by now i don't think she is i think in interviews i've read uh she just crammed like crazy i mean she read levey and she read crowley and she read all kinds right. of books about witchcraft and about tarot so i you know so it all the all the more impressive that as yeah. you said she's able to just do it in seven years um yeah incredible she yeah did an incredible job of that yeah and the tarot, the tarot cards too, are this place I think where color seems, color and and certainly like imagery seems very obvious in a way, potentially mm-hmm. misleading. But like you know, the card that we keep seeing throughout the movie is the three of swords, which is a heart being pierced by three blades upside down. And again, without being a tarot expert myself, it's like I don't think it takes a genius. You know, I looked up the meaning of the tarot card and it means having been emotionally hurt or heartbroken by someone else, like no surprise there. And that that becomes this sort of guiding force in the movie. So, you know, Biller isn't necessarily interested in subtlety of of symbol or image um, or whatever. And, And maybe that's okay too. You know, maybe we don't need movies to always need to be like sifted, a handful of sand that you sift through under a microscope in order to to enjoy them, right? They can just mm-hmm. kind of deal in images that might seem very obvious, but are very pleasurable at the same time. Yeah, and all, that also comes down to the tools that you have as well. I'm sure there could be listeners that we have right now who feel that's exactly what we did. Like, <laughs> we're, we're paleontologists who are blowing off the dust of the bones. It's like, how did they find all this stuff? And, mm-hmm. you know, it just comes down to what you know and what experiences you have with it as well. I've, I've, I also know plenty of other people who could probably, you know, pick apart this movie to a degree that I would not have seen all the different allegories that they found in it. Mm-hmm. And Abilla herself might even be surprised by some of the things people come up with. Cause you do, you know, there, there are lucky, you know, 
coincidences as well when you're creating something, or maybe just your own subconscious is leading you in a direction because, you know, especially with a movie like this, that harnesses something like color over form Mm. color does have this sort of inherent guiding factor to it. So there's Mm. a reason that we imbue different colors with different aspects and emotions. It's because they just speak to us that way. So, right. It, what we say is not subtle could have totally been a very subtle move, but it just seems very obvious if you have the right lens on, um, <laughs> you know, I, I love the fact that the colors of the tarot kept coming back because it kept like every moment you see that it kind of reminds you of, remember the tarot that you looked at, right. You'll know the colors of each one that you saw mm-hmm. uh, the whole Renaissance fair and the wedding scene as well. Just seems like the tarot deck has come alive mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. but unfortunately it's fake. It's all mm. a mock of everything. Yeah. So you, you still have the reality of the situation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more we go, the, the, the more rich of a film it seems to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that way of putting it that the tarot deck comes to life in the, uh, in the wedding scene. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, and, and, that there, and that therefore it's sort of almost doomed to, to fail, right? That like the mock wedding is doomed to fail because it's coming from this this fantasy that is tarot, this fantasy that is, you know, Italian Renaissance love, mm-hmm. um, where a sort of perfect man and a perfect woman, uh, biologically essentialist in both cases, you know, like this man, cis woman join, um, have this beautiful union. And it's like, no, 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 that, <laughs> that was, that was never a thing. It, it's not simply that we've lost track of that vision of love. It's that that was, that was never a successful vision of love. That's always imbricated in a history of, you know, both transphobia and, and straight up misogyny and trans misogyny. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's the scene where the movie like almost not undermines itself, but argues with itself a little bit because it, it's showing right. that what, what she wants, what Elaine wants actually has never been possible. And yeah. I found that very interesting too. I like how you point that, that it kind of contradicts itself or at least starts to like, challenge itself because i don't know if that scene was intended as such Mm -hmm. um it was it's a very interesting scene to me because it is so idealistic and as you say it it is very essentialist in its Mm -hmm. approach so it 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 doesn't account for you know queer love trans love Mm -hmm. and it is also the very backbone to Elaine's downfall was the fact that she gets caught up in this fake wedding as if Mm -hmm. it was this real declaration of love that the final image that we see is she takes Griff and she gets so caught up in this painting that she has of this powerful witch who is the master of the heart of her lover, who's literally carved out the heart of her, her lover. And so she decides well, fuck it. This is the only thing I haven't done so far. And so she just straight up stabs him and starts to you know, carve his heart. And then we just see him with that crown mm-hmm. back at that wedding. And that's the ideal image that she has of him. And it was very odd to me. I couldn't tell if the film was aware of itself to know that that was the tragedy of it all, that it was all fake, or if we were supposed to feel kind of like good on you, Elaine, that you finally (laughs) have the feeling. I I got a little confused at that point of what I was supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is Elaine just a girl boss uh, learning to kick ass (laughs) and take these? Um, Yeah, no, I, 
I agree. And it's a totally strange moment. I mean, it actually kind of reminds me of the end of Midsommar uh, by Ari Aster, which you brought up because there's this sort of ambivalence of, of a woman having a kind of revenge on a man who spurned her through this hideous act of violence against him. Right. And she, Mm -hmm. in both films, she wears this kind of strained pained smile on her face, right. Of like, well, I, I guess if I couldn't quite get what I wanted, then this is, this is the next best thing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Just destroying the supposed object of my, of my affection. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason we feel a little confused in it, that there is that contradiction built into what we want a lot of the time and cer- certainly into the vision, the like fucked up vision of love that uh, Elaine mm-hmm. has. There's it, it would be impossible for her to realize. Yeah. So. Also, that comparison with Midsummer is an interesting one because I think that both of them have the that feeling of where do we go from here? So you, if you, because with Midsummer, if you pay attention to all of the other happenings around them very closely, you realize that this was never a good situation for anybody involved except for the people who lived in that village. Mm-hmm. So, and you've never seen a May Queen in person. So we just think, ah, Danny, I don't know if this is going to end the best <laughs> for you either. And yeah. I kind of have the same for Elaine. It's like, is the other cop going to show up and stop her? Is she going to move again? Is she just going to sit peacefully and be happy? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what the actual resolution of the film is. And right. I guess that in a way kind of hammers home that overarching feeling that the film has throughout it, that you are so unsure of love in general, what does it mean to love somebody? The film doesn't really have a strong grasp on it. Mm-hmm. It shows you a lot of great examples of what love isn't. Um, Trish, I think, is a good example of somebody who's in love. And right. she's not fulfilled all the time, but she does love her husband. Mm-hmm. Although she also has that kind of commodity aspect, though, as well, where it's like I got she it. loves her husband. Yeah, I got my ring. <laughs> I got my ring. You know? <laughs> and, you know, I'm in love with him because he's my husband. There's a lot right. of that as well, that there's a lot of habituation in love. Yeah. So it's such an interesting view on that in this right. film. And, and I know we're harping on love more than we are in beauty, but that's just because of like that quote I brought in from Burke. They're so intertwined according to the perspective that you bring from it. And mm-hmm. to your point about the, was it chromophobia is how they put it? Mm-hmm. You know, that whole discourse, Burke was definitely one of those form over color <laughs> sorts of philosophers. He, mm-hmm. he loved proportion. He loved talking about, he did. Now he did say in his work that proportion wasn't what creates beauty, but it was amazing how much attention he gave proportion. So he's been focused on the size of things, the shapes of things, the, 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 he says like graduation as well. So like how things gradually change can create a beautiful form. So if you see like Mm. a sloping shoulder, as opposed to a square shoulder, for instance, Mm -hmm. Mm. you would kind you would put that more into a, a beautiful scope. And so, yeah, his views on love, I just find pretty appropriate for this film because they, this film does have a very proportional kind of viewpoint on that subject. I feel, Mm. I don't know if you would agree on that. Can you say a little bit more about proportionate love in the film? Like what, what strikes you as proportionate about it? Okay, sure. So the the discussions that they've had throughout the convert, like the whole film. So you have conversations between her and I think you said the other witch's name was Barbara. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So when they're discussing their different views on love, Barbara has a much more, I don't know. I just like to spend time with people. And then we, you know, I live life and they live life. And I think that you got to work on your polarity a little bit there, Elaine. Elaine's like, no, no, no. There are certain criteria that mm. if you do them correctly, right. the other person will love you unconditionally. Right. And the men also have that too. Griff has a very strong sense of not just love, but also just masculinity mm-hmm. of how it weakens him if he were to be in love. So he's like, well, love is dangerous for a man in my position because if it, if I allowed myself to be in love, this and that and the other. Mm-hmm. And they have almost, it seems like, degrees of when it's too much or too little and where's that sweet spot? So that's more what I'm getting at. Mm. With portion. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So um, kind of a sense of formula or calculation um, yes. that, yeah, and it's like almost mathematically, if everything mm-hmm. falls into a place then. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And that's also, um, it's also just present in the way the film presents witchcraft itself, right? There's literally a spell, you know, Elaine is constantly opening up her spell book and sort of seeing like, if, if you want why, then follow these steps and then boom, shakalaka at the end, your man will love you completely. And I think what the movie is rehearsing through Elaine's failure to achieve that is, is the kind of failure of that approach to love. Like there is no love you can't you can't really approach love as being divorced from irrationality. You know, it, it, it is not this completely rational endeavor. And that it I mean, the real culmination of that is in the ending where, as you said, you have this real sense of like, where do we go from here? What what comes after this? There's kind of a remainder every time that Elaine tries to take carry out this division formula or multiplication formula. There's a remainder at the end. It doesn't quite add up. There's an extra body because the man ended up with too much love. So there's this constant, I mean, I, I imagine she will continue to be, she'll either allow herself to be arrested or she'll just sort of continue this cycle forever because she seems unable to let go of the formula or spell approach to love. And it just keeps producing these excesses uh, and these imbalances for her. So the, the whole movie is sort of a critique of that approach, I think. Yeah, that I do think is an important detail as well. I think, you know, this movie has a lot of controversy. Uh, you know, we know you've already touched upon it yourself a little bit from some of uh, Anna Biller's own statements and some things that have come across very hetero essentialist in nature. Mm-hmm. And the film itself can be read that way if you want to get caught up in it. But there is that view of it being a critique that I do think is important that viewers take away from it, that there is this patriarchal aspect to it that is 100% being critiqued in this film. And it's not as if Elaine is this perfect protagonist. That is this hero that you're supposed to strive to be. She's a culmination of a past of terrible events. Events that we don't dwell on in the film, that's not important. You're seeing the result of this and mm-hmm. what it created and how it continues from there. So I'm really happy that you pointed out the fact that it's critiquing these things because I, I don't want anybody who's listening to get confused. We're not saying that this is a guidebook <laughs> by any means. <laughs> <laughs> right. And 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 it's a it's an approach that also sort of erases the possibility of any solidarity, solidarity among women, right? Like Elaine. Mm-hmm. Elaine is um, any married woman's worst nightmare. She she betrays the only woman that we've seen be kind to her, Trish. 
mm-hmm. completely like without a second thought, she she seduces Trish's husband Rick. But like the minute Trish leaves town for a furniture convention, oh, yeah. Elaine is like, "Oh, is is Rick gonna still be around?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and so there's it's it's like the narcissism, her sort of commitment to love just be, cuts off all possibilities of all other forms of relationships, romantic or otherwise, which is which is really tragic too. Um, because like even you, and you also see that the coven, which in other films, again, like the craft, but even honestly in a movie like Robert Eggers is the witch or season of the witch, other witchcraft films, like the coven can be a source of uh, female, female solidarity and, and connection, but it's not really in this, in this film, like Elaine remains friends with Barbara and they seem to have a, a you know, loose connection, but I feel like that's undermined by the fact that Barbara is married to Gahane, the really creepy head warlock, right? <laughs> yeah. And so there's this sense, there's this sense of um, detachment for Elaine. Like she has no real community, and she, especially if she keeps skipping town once she kills all the guys in the town. You know, she's <laughs> she's a total tumbleweed because of her single-hearted, single-handed, or single-minded commitment to romantic love. Yeah, I think she's also not even at all focused on community it would help her a lot if she were to actually include herself i mean she goes to these events but it it seems more like habit i mean she know she knew gahane mm-hmm. from a young age mm-hmm. and so she knows barbara very minimally but like, I, I didn't know did they mention this in the movie was she back in her hometown or was it just coincidence that she ran into <laughs> gahane again good question i think it's just coincidence i don't think okay. she's home in eureka i don't think that's her hometown but i could be wrong okay yeah well yeah it's not clear in any case it's not as mm-hmm. if i you know an explicit comment jumped out at me and it's very clear that she's into witchcraft but she's not into all of the community aspect of it or being in a coven by any means she's just she kind of uses them just to understand certain rituals and <laughs> She looks at, to see what kind of materials are they using. She goes to the shop. She buys them. She moves on. Right. And that's pretty much the definition of her life, isn't it? She sees. She replicates. She continues in her own kind of twisted sociopathic way that she doesn't ever actually understand the essence of the things that she learns. Mm. She just knows the aesthetics of the mm-hmm. things that she learns, more or less, mm. which is a critique you can make of this movie. <laughs> it's one that's been lauded many times that it's just an aesthetic delight that doesn't really uh, mm-hmm. go as deep as some people would like. Um, mm-hmm. But as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it's also up to you to go that deep and to see what you can find in it, regardless of what the film gives you. Right. Yeah, totally. So did you have any final comments or anything uh, pressing about The Love Witch? Uh, maybe a, a succinct wrap-up of your feelings on beauty within the film before <laughs> we wrap up. I don't think I have anything else to add, really. Um, to sum up, I think I think that's a movie that really shows off the powers of cinema, that shows a little bit, I think, ironically, like what we've, what we've sort of lost as we've switched to digital and switched to a more muted color palette in horror as well as other genres over the years. Um, I think it's something like 95, maybe even more over, over, you know, nearly, nearly hundred percent of movies these days are shot in digital. And this, this movie makes a real argument for shooting in film. If, if you're able to, <laughs> you're able to spend seven years making and editing a movie. But at the same time, the movie reveals that there are like perhaps some, 
troubling and problematic types of gender essentialism wrapped up in that era of cinema. So that if you carry forward sort of the aesthetics and the content of that era, you might want to think twice before swallowing them whole. But the nice thing about being contemporary viewers, I think, is that you can enjoy something as a piece of artwork that has an aesthetic effect on you and also, uh, you know, take take and leave what you want from the content, from the gender essentialism, from ideas about that are maybe a little bit outdated or actually very, very outdated, very second wave about feminism in the movie. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would still be really happy if we saw more movies being made with this kind of eye towards brightness, decor, lavish sets, slowness. Um, something we didn't talk about too much was like the slowness of the shots and the plots. Um, True. We didn't get into that. Yeah. yeah. Excellently put. I wholeheartedly agree with your uh, viewpoint and the kind of endeavor for us to call for people to put a bit more stock into bright aesthetics and explore more with that. You know, it's not bygone if you don't let it be bygone. And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about how this film is both a great example of the benefits of that style of filmmaking, but also is a great cautionary tale of what aspects you might want to leave behind on the cutting room floor as you go (laughs) along, or at the very least, it's a great experiment on how to hone your own skills in reading a film, even if it doesn't, ally with your own ideologies on the surface. You know, mm-hmm. you can apply your own ideology to a narrative and use it as a critique. You can still appreciate something for other aspects than the parts that you are critiquing as well. And The Love Witch, I think, is a great example of a film that we, although some may feel that there is, you know, because of the conflict that their ideology has against the ideologies that are presented in the film, they may feel it's a very dangerous movie or that it's not a movie that they would ever want to promote. Mm -hmm. But I want to challenge everybody to check it out and make up your own minds Mm -hmm. on what you see. And hopefully if this conversation has uh, struck a chord with you. You can also understand some of the ways that you can look at other stylistic choices in a different context. Thank you very much for that. Uh, (laughs) Then we're going to wrap up. So this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a screen pod squad. Be sure to follow the anatomy of a screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic and fun podcasts, including monster books hosted by Jessica Scott, The Thing from Another Medium, hosted by Adam Bumas and Maeve McGee, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to also keep track of the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, which is at beautyhorrorpod. Thank you again to Dr. Chelsea Davis for sitting down with me to talk about such an interesting and enlightening film today. Uh, So where can everybody find you? Uh, What what socials can they go to? And do you have anything coming up that maybe you would like to plug? This will be Mm. released somewhere, I think, late June or so. Cool. Yeah, you can um, find more of my writing on my website, which is ChelseaMDavis.net. That's M as in Marie. I write a, uh, used to be monthly, now a little bit less, uh, newsletter, which looks at the relationship between comedy and horror uh, called Shrieks and Howls. And you can find, you can subscribe to that if you like, tinyletter.com slash Chelsea M. Davis. It's free. It's not a sub stack, so you don't have to pay for it. And the, the premise of that is that each 
uh, in each issue, I look at a romantic comedy film and a horror film that share one word in their title, and then I talk about them together. So Rosemary's Baby and Bridget Jones's Baby, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I've got coming out for now. So thanks a bunch for having me, Chandler. This is super fun to talk about. Oh, I'm really happy you enjoyed it. I've had an absolute blast. I, I, it's been great talking to everybody, and especially when people bring a film like this where I, I knew it was going to come up eventually, but I didn't know what I was going to say about it necessarily. So I think we had a wonderful conversation. So thank you for that. Yeah, this was really fun. Um, now I want to—I almost want to go back and watch it again, which is like telling that we've had a good conversation because I've already seen it too many times. So. that's the sign of a good conversation and also thank you dear listener for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible goodbye there's no beauty